Well, friends, it's good to be with you this afternoon. Please do keep your Bibles open, either physically or electronically, in Mark 9. And let me pray for us as we dive into God's Word. Let's pray again. Father, thank you that you are a speaking God. Thank you that you have words to speak to us tonight. And please would you give us attentive ears and minds now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Picture the scene. Uh, Eve and I are trying to change a blind on a window at home and we run into problems. We need some help with the DIY. Classic Merkit case study. What do you do? Uh, For some of us, we would look up the solution in a book. We'd read the instructions, we'd open some DIY manual. For others of us, maybe of a different generation, we'd turn to the source of all information today, YouTube, and we'd watch a video. We'd watch some vlogger and see how they could help us with the problem we were in. Uh, That's actually what we did, so I felt quite young at heart, I have to say. Well, however we'd access help, uh, even I had a how-to problem. In that case, how to change a blind on a window. But ultimately, it didn't really matter where we went for help. The answer would have been the same whether we were reading it in a book or watching it online. But what if the question or the problem is a bit more important than that? What if we need help with the how-to of following Jesus? Where do we go for help to be a disciple? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That should be an important question for all of us, not least because we are a church who want to be disciples who make other disciples. So how do we follow Jesus when life is hard? How do we follow Jesus when we suffer for identifying with him? How do we follow Jesus in the midst of fighting our own sinfulness? How do we follow Jesus when our marriages are tough? How do we follow Jesus when our children break our hearts? How do we follow Jesus in a culture driven largely by sex and money and power? Now, you could look those questions up uh, on YouTube. Uh, You might find some helpful answers out there, uh, but you might not. There are plenty of false teachers online, and you can find them relatively easily. Or you could look up those questions in some Christian book on discipleship. But here at Eden, an online Christian bookstore, if you search for discipleship, you will get over 750 hits. You can read books with titles like Radical Discipleship, or Deep Discipleship, or Spiritual Discipleship, as if there's any other kind, uh, or Simple Discipleship, or Transformational Discipleship, or even Reimagining Discipleship. I'm sure many of those books would be helpful, but no one's got time to read 750 of them, have they? Well, friends, in many ways, the second half of Mark's Gospel, chapters 9 through to 16, is a bit like a how-to manual to help us be disciples and follow Jesus today. We're returning to Mark's Gospel this afternoon. And Mark's Gospel, just like a good football match, is a gospel of two halves. In the first half, chapters 1 to 8, Mark is answering the question, who is Jesus and what has Jesus come to do? You might remember the crescendo Mark's Gospel reached just a few verses earlier in chapter 8. We looked at it just before Easter, I think. uh, Where Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, blurts out, chapter 8, 29, 
You are the Messiah, God's long-promised rescuer king, come to save his people and put everything right with the world. And that is who Jesus is. And when that piece of the puzzle falls into place, Jesus sets out his mission to suffer and to die as a ransom for the forgiveness of our sins. In the second half of Mark's Gospel, 9 to 16, Mark is answering the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? In other words, how to be a disciple. That theme's already been raised in chapter 8, where Jesus says, chapter 8, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. In other words, disciples need to be prepared to come and die, to give up their rights, to turn aside from self-interest and follow a crucified Messiah to their own execution. And Mark spends the second half of his gospel unpacking those principles and applying them to real-life situations that we're going to encounter today. And he begins all that in chapter 9, verses 2 through to 29. And we're going to see today two crucial aspects of discipleship. Two things to bear in mind to help us be disciples today. And I, I trust that what we think about will be good for us this afternoon. I trust it will help us think clearly about being a disciple. It will help clarify expectations of what it means to follow Jesus. I hope it will encourage us to keep going when things are hard. I hope it will challenge us to keep following Jesus if we're tempted to give up this afternoon. I hope it will set out why it is important to follow Jesus and why we should start following him today if we haven't yet done so. So let's dive into Mark chapter 9. How to guide for discipleship and see firstly, which will take the majority of our time, the first lesson for us today to help us be disciples is the important lesson of listening to Jesus when he speaks about suffering before glory. Listen to Jesus when he speaks about suffering before glory. This lesson comes at the centre of an epic moment in Bible history. The kind of moment you, you, you wish you were present for. You read these verses and you feel a bit of kind of spiritual fear of missing out. Maybe that's just me. Verse 2. Jesus led his three closest disciples up a high mountain. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses. Wish you were there? To see Jesus shot through with radiant, stunning, heavenly glory. This is an otherworldly moment, isn't it? That's exactly why his clothes shine whiter than it's possible to get them on earth. Not even Persil or Napisan or Domestos can match this. Jesus is transfigured. His appearance is changed so that we see something of his dazzling and blinding majesty. This is a disclosure of glory that Jesus already has 
as God's precious and beautiful and eternal son, one sharing the life of God and shimmering with divine greatness. But in his life, this glory's been, been hidden in part, hasn't it? It's been concealed as Jesus has walked around as a real human being, looking just like us, fairly ordinary and, and unimpressive in many ways. It's not like Jesus kind of glowed in the dark with glory or, or anything like that. But here the curtain is drawn back and something of Jesus' true status is seen. But it's also a promise of glory that Jesus will experience in the future as well. When shortly in his story he rises from the dead and returns to the Father's side and will one day come back to this world to judge. So the glory here is a bit of a teaser, a bit of a trailer, a bit of a foretaste ahead of time of the glory that will be seen on the final day when, chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And it's in the middle of this intense moment that God the Father speaks from the cloud that surrounded them. Verse 7. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The Father affirms his love, his delight, his satisfaction with his beautiful boy. A little like how new parents can't help telling you how wonderful or amazing their child is. The father is thrilled with the son, his only son, his precious son. And so he wants us to listen to him. That's the connection. In light of who Jesus is, the dearly loved son of the father, the apple of his eye, his disciples are to listen to him. Listen to him. Sound a bit like an anticlimax? Surely the disciples know this lesson already, don't they? Well, maybe. But maybe not. See, we need to connect this story with what's just happened in chapter 8. Jesus there has predicted his suffering and death in stark language. Chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, and that he must be killed. But he's also spoken about glory that will come after that as well. After three days he will rise again, suffering and glory. In fact, how suffering is the path to glory. And that's true in all sorts of ways. That's true of uh, Emma Raducanu. She hasn't just won the US Open uh, uh, kind of overnight. She's enjoying the glory of winning that prestigious tournament and there's been a whole lot of suffering to get there, I'm sure. Early morning training drills, ruthless control of diet and intake of food, probably missing out on a whole lot of social occasions because she needed to be doing other things that were more important for her. You see, the wider principle is suffering is the path to glory. In fact, you can't have glory without suffering. You can't bypass the cross and just claim the crown. It doesn't work that way. See, Jesus speaks to his disciples about that principle, suffering before glory. That's what they need to listen to him about. And the disciples are struggling to do that. 
Peter uh, can't compute this. Uh, In chapter 8, he isn't listening to what Jesus is saying. Remember, he's just confessed Jesus is the Messiah. But for Peter, the Messiah is a shorthand for a conquering warrior, a a Roman basher, someone who will throw out the despised occupying forces, a military superman who's going to reign, not suffer, be glorified, not die. And so Peter aligns himself with the great enemy of God's people. And chapter 8, verse 32, begins to rebuke Jesus. That's pretty awkward, isn't it? He's not listening. He's busy rebuking. Jesus speaks of suffering before glory. Peter needs to listen to that. He's still struggling with that when we land in chapter 9. And you can understand that, can't you? Jesus has promised, chapter 9, verse 1, that some listening to him will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And so there's Peter, and and he's on the mountain. He's privileged to witness Jesus' heavenly glory with his own eyes. You can hear his jaw dropping as Moses and Elijah arrive to join the party, testifying to the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus. And for Peter, it kind of looks like this is glory, this is the kingdom. What more is there? Here's glory without the cross. Here's satisfaction without suffering. Here is the rule without the rejection. You can kind of, Peter's thinking that. That kind of makes sense of verse 5. That's why he wants to put tents up and stay. He wants to extend this celebration. He wants the glory and to bask in the majesty of this moment. But he needs to listen to Jesus and understand there is no shortcut to glory. There is no upgrade you can buy to avoid suffering. There is no claiming the crown without enduring the cross. Peter needs to listen to Jesus when he speaks about suffering before glory. What about you? What about me? We need to listen to Jesus when he speaks to us about suffering before glory. Let's be in no doubt, there is real glory here, isn't there? We see clearly Jesus in awesome, stunning radiance. His clothes take on a glory impossible on earth because they're lit up with the glory of the world to come. A glory that belongs to Jesus by right because of his eternal relationship with the Father. But also a glory that will be his in a new way after he dies and rises and is exalted as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here is the advanced preview of the resurrected glory that Jesus has now. Because he's died and risen. He will die. He will rise. He will be exalted and he will one day return in his father's glory. And maybe we we need to grasp that today. Maybe we're wondering whether it's honestly worth following Jesus or worth making some sacrifice to serve him. Really worth doing what he says of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him 
maybe you're here this afternoon and you're not yet following Jesus. You're weighing it up and you're asking questions about, is it worth it? You're thinking, what do I gain by committing to him? What is there to show for it? Is it really worth it all? And if that is you, can I plead with you? The answer is an unambiguous yes. It is worth it. There is suffering. But there is also profound and deep and wonderful glory. A glory that you can share too. Because Jesus promises to share his glory with all who follow him. They too will be raised from the dead. They too one day will reign with him forever. It is worth following Jesus. When life is hard, or when your heart is breaking, or when you want to give up. If that is you today, can I encourage you, lift your heads. Lift your hearts. See the glory on show here. Be encouraged to keep on following Jesus. There is glory now and more to come. Keep going. Don't give up. Hear the words of your precious Saviour. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? For what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? We need to listen to Jesus as he speaks about suffering before glory. But let's also be in no doubt. There is great glory here. But there is great suffering here too. You see, the disciples can't stay on the mountain. They need to come down and connect with messy reality. Surely Jesus will suffer. He will be rejected. He'll be executed as a common criminal, a troublemaker, an enemy of the state. The religious and secular powers will gang up on him to crush him and do their worst. And those who follow him must be prepared to walk that path too. It is worth it. But we must take up our cross. We're called to follow Jesus to the place of execution. To die. To die to self. Or to reputation. Or to safety. Or to security. To comfort. To acceptance in this world. To being well thought of. To be considered sophisticated and sensible. To be included in the inner crowd at times. And maybe we need to grasp that today. Maybe we're surprised by how hard it is just following Jesus. And we feel ourselves flagging. We're tempted to give up. Maybe we're surprised that following Jesus has actually made things harder for us. And not easier. Maybe we're surprised Jesus hasn't made our life better in the ways we thought he would, but actually following him has brought us far more trouble than we ever knew. I know that's often how I feel. I trust I'm not the only one. But what did I expect? What did we expect? See, we follow a crucified Messiah, don't we? One who speaks with unflinching honesty here about taking up our cross and following One who sets up the shape of what discipleship looks like right at the start, up front, no hidden costs, no small print, no spin. Maybe the problem is my expectations, rather than Jesus. Let's be clear, there is suffering 
before glory. And I know my own heart, something in my heart will want to resist that and ignore that and rewrite that. But I can't. And you can't. We must listen to Jesus when he speaks about suffering before glory. That's the first big lesson for us, to be a disciple today. Secondly, and a little bit more quickly, the second principle of discipleship from these verses is the call to believe that Jesus can raise the dead. Believe that Jesus can raise the dead. We get a dramatic change of scene and pace in these verses, don't we, in the second half of the chapter. We go from the mountain to the valley. We go from a small group of observers to an animated crowd. We move from a a calm atmosphere to, to a heated argument. An argument involving the rest of the disciples who have failed to drive a demon out of a possessed boy. But even though there's the change, the focus in these last verses remains on Jesus. For our how-to guide, we are called to believe that Jesus can raise the dead. Which guarantees that glory we've already been thinking about for all who follow him. This thing comes up in the conversation that takes place between Jesus and the father of the troubled boy. And it is a desperate situation, isn't it? The boy's plagued by a spirit, verse 17 and 18, that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. Verse 22, it's afflicted him from childhood and it's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. There is no hope here, humanly speaking. That's the point. And so the father brings his son to Jesus. He's engaged first with the disciples, but they've drawn a blank. They they fail to drive the spirit out. You see, there is some evil in the world that is just so profound, all seems lost. Until Jesus gets involved. The father pleads with Jesus, verse 22, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus picks up that gauntlet that's well and truly been thrown down. If you can. Everything is possible for the one who believes, verse uh, 23. And with heart-wrenching honesty, that we can all identify with, I'm sure, the man speaks, verse 24, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. You see, it's not the amount of faith that the man has, it's where that faith is located that makes the difference. Jesus calls for this man to trust him, to believe in him, believe that he has power and ability to heal his boy and bring restoration. Believe. That's our first idea we need to think about. But believe that Jesus can raise the dead. Where does that come from? Well, with brilliant storytelling skill, Mark just drops in a little detail in, in the narrative. And Mark is a compressed writer. No word is ever wasted. Every word matters. Listen to what happens, verse 27. The spirit, uh, Jesus commands the demon to leave. We read verse 27. The spirit shrieked, convulsed the boy violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. You see, when the spirit leaves the boy, he's as good as dead. 
There are no signs of life. If this was a medical drama, the doctors would be calling time of death. The crowd, who aren't idiots, and have probably seen dead bodies before, reason that the boy's gone, that there's no hope. But not when Jesus is around. He steps in and shows he has power to help in even the most desperate situation. He can even raise the dead, metaphorically here, but literally, as we know elsewhere in Mark's Gospel. But why make this point now, at this point in Mark's Gospel? Well, remember what we've just been saying. Jesus has been speaking about suffering and glory, his own death and resurrection, And Mark wants to reassure us immediately after Jesus has said that, that he is able to deliver on what he's speaking about. He can raise the dead. He too himself soon will die and rise, but he's also able to give life after death to all who trust him and to raise them. And that's kind of represented in the healing of this boy who is as good as dead. And that means that discipleship today is not meaningless. Following Jesus is not a waste of your time or my time. It makes sense to take up our cross and follow. There is glory to come, and the guarantee of that is that Jesus is with you. And he can raise you, and he can raise me. We must believe Jesus can raise the dead. So here are the first two aspects of Mark's how-to guide to help us follow Jesus today. Listen to Jesus when he speaks about suffering before glory and believe that he can raise the dead. As we finish today, let me tell you about Emily and Stephen Foreman. God called them to bring the good news of Jesus to a Muslim nation where Christianity was illegal. They knew They were following a crucified Messiah. They knew in this call they were being called to a life of sacrifice. The kind of motto that they spoke to each other as they left home to follow Jesus was, we died before we came here. And those words were truer than they ever knew. Stephen was later murdered by Al-Qaeda extremists. And Emily wrote their experiences up into the book on the screen, uh, uh, and I commend it to you. It is called, fittingly, We Died Before We Came Here. See, they've listened to Jesus when he speaks about suffering before glory. They've believed that Jesus can raise the dead. Emily writes, In this life I've lost. I lost my husband and best friend. My children lost their father. But Stephen didn't lose his life. He found it. And the book ends with a searching question for all of us. Do we have something worth dying for? Living for? Moving for? Yes. 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 We might not be called to martyrdom. We might not be called to suffer as they did. We might not be called to move halfway around the world to share the gospel. But we are called to listen to Jesus as he speaks to us about suffering before glory and believe that he is able to raise the dead. Do we have something worth dying for, living for, 
moving for? Let me pray. Father, we've considered uh, weighty things this afternoon. Things that are hard to hear. Give us, please, we pray, soft hearts. And where what I said has been in line with your word, would you press it home to us now by your spirit? Give us ears to listen to your son as he speaks. Always, but especially here as he speaks of suffering before glory. Capture our gaze with this beautiful glory that's disclosed on the Mount of Transfiguration as a foretaste of all that Jesus now enjoys in his resurrected status. Convince us it is worth following Jesus today, we pray. It is worth taking up our cross, denying ourselves and following. Help us not be surprised or taken aback by hardship, but prepared because we've listened to Jesus as he speaks about suffering before glory. But thank you also that we can believe that he is able to raise the dead. How we need that. Father, our faith is so fragile. We believe, help us overcome our unbelief, is the story of my heart to say nothing of others' hearts here today. But please keep us looking to Jesus, who alone can raise the dead, and therefore convince the discipleship is worth it. That we have everything to gain by following Christ, even when it's hard. Father, thank you that because of Jesus, we have something worth living for. Someone worth living for. Someone worth dying for. Someone worth moving for. Help us to be loyal disciples of a crucified Messiah. In his name we pray.